for the next hour or so. I'd like to invite you to grab your cup of coffee, tea, or caffeine-free A&W diet root beer, if that's your beverage of choice, and settle in for the 14th episode of The Return of Fiber Hooligan. For those of you who are wondering who the heck I am, I am your host, Benjamin Levesay. I am also the CEO of XRX, home of XRX Books and Stitches Expos. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm broadcasting live from my home here in Harrisburg, South Dakota. If you are tuning in for the first time, Fiber Hooligan is a podcast dedicated to bringing you interviews with the best of the fiber arts and makers world, including experts, business people, and designers in the crafts of knitting, crochet, spinning, dyeing, weaving, sewing, quilting, embroidery, as well as anything else I think is interesting. I want to welcome the new listeners today. Thank you for tuning in and trying out the show. I hope you enjoy it. And I can't wait for us to get to know each other better. And of course, I'd like to welcome back our regular Fiber Hooligan listeners who used to tune into the original show many years ago. Your ongoing support means so very much to me. Okay, let's get right to the guest today because I'm excited to, that you could join us. My guest today is Diane Ivy, the owner and the owner and creative director of Lady Dye Yarns, an indie dye yarn company said that has been founded since 2010. Diane's pronouns are she and her. A knitter of 18 years and a dyer, spinner, and crocheter of 13, Diane looks forward to not only expanding her company, but to using her expertise in growth and expansion with other BIPOC businesses to grow on a national scale. She spent 16 years in the nonprofit sector. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in political science and mass communication with a concentration in print journalism from Georgia College and State University. She holds a Master's in public administration with a concentration in nonprofit management from Suffolk University. She, there's a great quote from Diane online. Our freedom and equality is tied to each other no matter what race, gender, identity, socioeconomics, or background. If we all want equality in pay, work, reproductive rights, and more, we must all work together as one. Diane is very busy these days, and I'm so very much appreciative that she could find time to join us. Diane joins us this morning from her home in Boston, Mass. Good morning, Diane, and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's, it's, it's about time. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm the one excited here. It's about time you've been on the, you know, it's funny when you sit down and you make the list of, of who you want on the show and you bring it back, uh, immediately uh, 50 people are on there. You were on the, the initial list, and as you know, we're going to take a break here soon, and I wanted, I had to have you on the show before we took our break, so it didn't seem like I'm much. glad that it worked out. I'm glad I, it I am worked too. out, so... Well, and, and the, it's, so, yeah. it's a good time too because you've got some things that you want to talk about, and you know it's it's uh, it's going to be timely too. So, um, first of all, yeah, how are things yeah. in Boston, Mass? Well, well, today it's very hot. It's about a hundred. I woke up. I I try not to sleep too much with the AC being cool, but I I woke up and I was just hot, and <laughs> I had to turn the AC on. Um, and you know, just like many other people across the country, we have been. Uh, you know, kind of sheltering in place since the pandemic started and um, making things work. But things are great in Boston. Other than that, it's the summertime and, you know, the only thing that's changed is social distancing, but we're having a good time. Well, good. Well, that's fantastic. All right. Yeah. Well, let's just jump right into this. I'll ask you a nice, easy question. Um, oh, Diane, who first. are you and where did you come from? <laughs> So I am from, I'm originally from the Midwest. I spent my early childhood growing up in the suburbs of um, outside of Chicago on the uh, North Shore. And then my family, we made our way to the South in Georgia. I went to high school and college there. 
And uh, I have a company that I love. Um, my yarn is inspired by graffiti art, and I've been working on it for almost it's about 10 years now. I also am a craftivist, so I promote um, I promote activism and crafting together, which craftivism has been around since the American Revolution. So a lot of the work that I do um, within the yarn business, um, particularly my business, is, you know, working, doing collaborations with people who are people of color, which we call uh, BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color. And we do crafting kits that we put together for people. Um, And, yeah, I have been in this industry for a good long time. I've been in Boston for about 16 years, so I'm well-traveled, and I've traveled abroad quite a bit. Uh, So that's a little bit about me. And what I'm not doing, like, you know when people ask you, like, if you're not doing your work, what do you enjoy doing? (laughs) Um, And I used to say, I used to say when, before I started the business, I would say, oh, I enjoy knitting and crafting and whatnot. But now that I do it in my business, you know, I actually enjoy listening to podcasts and um, reading. And so those are my two things that I spend a lot of time on. <laughs> Maybe yeah, too much uh, time. I, uh, well, you know, it is funny how people um, have said, you know, they, they no longer list knitting or crocheting or as something they enjoy as a hobby now that they're in the business of doing it. Not that they hate it. They just don't. No, it's just, hobby. it's just, it's not, it's not a hobby any, for me anymore. And, and even though I yeah. still do it, but it's, it's definitely, definitely, definitely interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I, I completely understand. So you, you as as I read in your bio, um, you're incredibly well credentialed and well educated. Um, you it seemed like school was good for you. You like school. Um, and uh, I did like school. I didn't. I actually growing up, I I uh, I played sports. Actually, I was a jockette, but I was not one of those obnoxious athletes who. Was rude to people. I was also vice president of the debate team. <laughs> so while playing basketball, I debated, and um, so yeah, I really enjoyed school. And I knew, you know, people say they go into college and they don't know what they want to do. I knew going into college what I wanted to do. Um, and I, you know, a lot of time I spent in high school. I was on the newspaper. I attended a lot of programs in the summer for journalism. So yeah, I, I I'm. I think it's interesting that after I went to school, I thought I was going to use all the the degrees that I had as a career. And when I started my business and I told my family that I was leaving and I left a really good paying job and I said, oh, I'm leaving to start a yarn business, I think that they just looked at me like, you're going to go from there to doing what? And um, recently, in the past two years, I finally have been able to, like, bridge all of my degrees into what I love. And I, and I absolutely love that. I mean, it took some time, but um, I made it happen. Well, and it, it, again, we're talking about a huge transition here um, because I, I believe yeah. right before you were, right before you started your business, you were working at a nonprofit, correct? Yeah, I was working on the foundation level. So I worked for one of the, one of the things that people do not know is that Massachusetts has more nonprofits than any other state, and that the nonprofit sector is actually um, like one of the top 
areas that if you, if you lived in Massachusetts, people would say they work for a nonprofit. And so a lot of the nonprofits are national nonprofits. And, but I worked for very prominent nonprofits um, in Massachusetts. And after grad school, I went and worked for um, the Boston Foundation, which is one of the oldest and largest foundations in our country. And I worked on a $25 million initiative. Um, I was on a startup. It was called Street Safe, and it was to reduce youth violence um, in the city of Boston. And so, um, you know, I was there to get started. We helped give out millions of dollars in grants, and um, it was it was really quite the experience. And it was an interesting time because I entered that job um, in 2008. I graduated in college, uh, graduated grad school in May of 2008, at the, you know, during the recession. So I was very lucky to be able to have found a really good paying job um, and um, at a really prominent institution in, um, in Boston. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it was a huge career change going from that to dyeing yarn. And I feel like those stories you hear about entrepreneurs and how they made it or how they became successful it's it's never something that is like what you expect, you know? So uh, I don't think my story is any different than any other entrepreneur. Um, you take a risk, <laughs> take a leap of faith and you work at, you work your butt off for years. Um, and then there are things, it's like someone, I forgot who it was. Um, I was, I was reading something or, or listening to something on a podcast and he, he, the guy was saying that like, there's like a, it's it's like a 5% of like having a business being successful is like luck. Like you're at the right place at the right time. And when the crafting community had the discussion last year about diversity and inclusion, it was just the right time. And I took, I seized that moment to really push forward, like what my brand wanted to be in the future. And I, like spent last year really testing things out and implementing things that have allowed me to be where I am today. And it was that 5% of like luck or that conversation needed to happen. But that incident was that changing point in my business and how I use that really benefited me. And so I'm very grateful for that. Well, so let's talk about that conversation. Let's let's un, let's unpack that. It was um, it was about a year and a half ago, right? Um, mm-hmm. at this point it was, and um, you know, it uh, it shook things up in, in a good way. Um, yeah, like you said, a conversation well passed. I mean, it was not, good, that the conversa- it was not that the conversation <laughs> wasn't happening, but people weren't paying attention. Um, so. You know that that's that's something we talked about before, which is you know it's not like mm-hmm. this wasn't there. It's just that you know. So it, these things happened, and and it was it was it was kind of an amazing conversation in a lot of ways. Almost anything that could be said was said in in yeah in in kind of in in, in mostly a positive way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, mean, I it it was very. I feel that there were a lot of things that came out of it. Like, uh, I'll, let's just back it up. So. For myself as a business, when I started, I started locally in 2010, and I spent three or four years trying to figure out how to, like, get a website up, how do you sell a product, and I stayed local. And when it was 2014 was when I went to my first national show, 
which was the TNA trade show, and I was the only black business there at the time. And I felt like, you know, this is really sad. There's so much talent out there. Um, and so I remember, remember, like, in 2015, I had written a blog post about the lack of diversity and inclusion in the crafting community and what needed to change. And a lot of people at the time, black and white friends of mine who were in the crafting community, were like, why would you do that? That's such a risk for your business, right? To think that talking about diversity and inclusion would be a risk for my business, but in hindsight, it really was. And so when we had that conversation about a year and a half ago in January and the incident happened, you had younger people in the crafting community and the power of social media really elevate that conversation. We hear things that go viral on, like, Facebook and on Twitter. Well, that conversation went really viral on Instagram because that's where our community is at. That's the social media platform. So hearing people tell their stories about racism and uh, discrimination in the crafting community and then having a lot of white women, you know, just being honest, having to listen and to see those stories within their space on social media, you either tuned it off or you tuned in and you realized that there was a problem. And then we started putting, holding people accountable to the actions that they have they did, um, or, or, you know, or not so much did, but the, holding, holding businesses, whether they're independent businesses or corporations, accountable to making sure that they were including a, a wide variety of people, not just um, uh, BIPOCs, but LGBTQIA+, plus, um, more, you know, uh, you know dis- people with disabilities, so you saw this, this wide range of outcry for more diversity and inclusion. And we spent several months in the beginning kind of like getting our feelings out. And then, you know, I also felt that in the summer, kind of late in the summer, that conversation got derailed. One of the biggest things that I've always said, um, that I've always believed in, and it's a quote by, I want to say it's Angela Davis, that, you know, it, um, um, I no longer accept the things that I cannot change. I cha- I'm changing the things I could no longer accept. And, you know, my other one is if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. And so for me, I've always come across of like, if you, w- here we have a situation where we know that there's discrimination. We know that we need to improve in these areas. So what are the actions, that, steps that we're going to take? What are tangible things that we're going to do to fix um, the systems of uh, racism and, and oppression. And, it, and late in the summer, I felt that it started becoming a little bit more like a witch hunt. Um, there were certain incidences that happened that were incidences that needed to be addressed and that people apologized for. But we didn't give those people the opportunity to um, allow them to have the time to, 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 to make the correction to change. And then you had some people who were just blatant you know, racist that were never going to change. Um, and so you had this kind of back and forth of, you know, um, uh, people, uh, the, the, people becoming much more angrier of, of the situation. And everything started, you know, to arise. But then at the, towards the end of the year of last year, I think we all came back to kind of like the bigger picture 
And there were tangible things that have come out of that discussion. One of the things, one of the many things is that you have organizations like, um, you know, the, the Stitches events and or Vogue Knitting Live, everyone's created like a, a diversity council. We've taken in, you know, into consideration the cost of doing shows. We've done size inclusivity. We've done pay scale as far as like pay what you can for a pattern. So you're starting to see these different areas that the crafting community has come around from that conversation. And it was, it, I mean, nothing is ever perfect. There's a, things get messy, but in the end, we really have come together. And so when we look at what's happening on the national stage right now, um, particularly after the murder of George Floyd, all these other industries um, in the country are dealing with what we were dealing with last year. So we're kind of ahead of the game with a lot of people, a lot of industries. And so this year I felt that people took note of what happened last year and allowed other people to have this, to, to hold space during that time in June and July to have a meaningful conversation um, and to support black businesses. So I feel that we've come a long way since the conversation that we had a year and a half ago. Well, and and uh, I, I'm glad that you feel that way too. You know, there there are days where um, I think we all get uh, demotivated. I don't need to tell you about that. Um, there are yeah. things that happen that, uh, you know, and uh, I, I try to stay positive, but, you know, catch me on the wrong day mm-hmm. and uh, I can feel, you know, it the way that – it, it does. It does, and it's it's uh, it's kind of important to try to remember at those times that that's a moment in time. It actually doesn't define your whole day or even your whole life, you know. So um, yes, yeah. something I'm trying to remember to do for myself because I tend to get myself down about things, which is not good. Not good yeah. for anybody. Not good for anybody to be down about things. You know, it's, it's your opportunity yeah. in the world opportunities. So one of the things that I like about what you do is, you know, not only your your business the model, but you know, I was I was there at the last Stitches West and your booth was just full of great stuff from from uh yeah. um, BIPOC artisans and uh you know it looked fantastic and it, it was just interesting stuff too. Um you know can you talk about how you go through that process to, to you know what you, I mean again going to shows is not your only model. You know, but you know it's no. it's, it's certainly something you it's work a, on. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, given the pandemic, you know, a lot of people like doing the shows are a huge revenue stream for businesses. So it is a huge blow that you know the way that things have happened with the pandemic. But as far as the kits go that we have, you know, throughout the year, uh, it actually started in the in the fall of 2018. Um, I really wanted to be able to promote my business, and I realized at the time that if I really wanted to promote my business, that I would actually need the support of other BIPOCs in the community. And how can I support my business and also at the same time support their business? And I decided to create these kits originally that would have a someone who was uh, a BIPOC designer, um, someone who did accessories like stitch markers or needle gauge, um, and then my yarn, and then maybe some other items coffee um, and we would put it together and we and um, I looked at it as an opportunity to promote our businesses and the first the first couple ones were they were amazing but I didn't realize how much work actually you know 
the amount of work that goes into it is, is quite a bit because you're dealing with different businesses and different their different expectation on pay. Um, so, you know, we have like I had the first club I did, I had like um, 70 people sign up um, and it didn't start catching on. I was like, well, maybe this isn't profitable. And then I talked to my advisory board and they're like, you know, Diane, it's just your first one. And I think, you know, they were like, 70 people signed up. That's actually pretty good. You know, you have to keep doing it and you have to keep marketing it in order for it to be successful. You just can't do it one time and then expect people to know who you are and what you're doing, what you're promoting. So I spent a lot of time, even in 2019, kind of um, working on, you know, the marketing and branding and the strategy um, around it. And I brought on an operations manager, Claudia Carpenter, who is known in the crafting community by Crochet Luna. And with her help, I was able to concentrate on, you know, finding new businesses, coming up in, with different themes. So we did, we had a, we just finished up a very successful club collaboration called Shit's Creek <laughs> from the show. And it was theme based and we sold out. We had about 300. So I went from, you know, having people, you know, 25 people sign up to now having over 300. We sell out around 300 people per club. Um, and so when we were thinking about the shows that we were doing, one of the, one of the big uh, factors in attending a show is the money. And we know from systematic racism and oppression that people of color are um, left behind. And so I have, over the course of two years, um, brought in a couple businesses to have their products sold in my booth along with mine. And so I also, when you saw um, my booth at Stitches West, we decided to actually put some of those kits in the booth. But that was actually our first time doing that. Usually we have the different businesses and their products. But this, this time around, we actually put all these different kits together. We, had a, we actually had a Stitches West collaboration kit, and we had over 100, I think 100 people uh, sign up for that one. And so they picked their kits up at Stitches West. So that also brought people into our booth and so that we could talk more about what we're doing. Um, and so it's been a really, it's really great to work. It's really great to work with all these other businesses. And, you know, Benjamin, it also shows the depth of the crafting community. There's so many makers out there. There's so many businesses out there. And it's not just white businesses. It's black, Latina, Asian, um, gay, straight, like, all these businesses that are there, and there's still plenty of room for more. And that's, that's amazing. Oh, yes. Well, you know, absolutely there are. And, uh, you know, in, in, it, 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 it's, it's sort of, it's so counterproductive. You know, again, we talk about the, the concept of institutional racism, which is, you know, a vicious circle where you, because yeah. this is who you know, this is who you know, right? Um, and this is what happens. And, you know, it, it, we're talking not only talking about you know diversity of, of the people, but diversity of product and diversity of exposure and diversity of creativity that is yeah. done. Yeah, I mean, and that yeah, th there's a lot there's a lot of upsides to this in in lots of ways, you know. And it is, and you know, some people will say, "Well, how profitable is it?" And bringing Claudia on, who her background is actually. Um, you know, accounting and whatnot um, has helped quite a bit, but it is profitable. We we do it based upon, you know, it's about, about volume. So we do wholesale costs, 
so that we and we understand um, the socioeconomics that our type of independent um, crafting, you know, we call it, is expensive. It's not, um, you know, it's not. I was, I mean, see, it's not like the the, the going to Michaels or something. It is very much a luxury item. And what I wanted to make sure was that if you that if you if you go on my website and you're looking to support my business or you're looking to get a club, that there are different clubs at different price points. And so anyone can actually go and get a club off of my website at different price points throughout the, the, throughout the year. Um, and uh, that is very, very important to me. When I first started knitting, uh, I was an AmeriCorps member. I was, you know, at City Year, and we were living on, I was living on a, a stipend of, gosh, like $225 a week. <laughs> and I had learned to knit then. I learned, and uh, I didn't have much money. But I, whatever money that I could get, I would spend on yarn. And so that meant that I was going to Michael's or Joanne's Fabric or whatever. Or if the if a yarn store had something on sale, I was definitely there to buy the yarn. Um, and I didn't really have a stash because I just couldn't afford it. But once I started having some disposable income when I uh, left AmeriCorps and when I finished, um, I was able to start buying independent yarn and independent dye, uh, indie dye yarn and things like that. So I understand that there's a financial burden uh, with this, like, you know, with having uh, indie dye yarn as a luxury item. And so you want to make sure as a business that, no, you can't please everyone, but you should be able to, I just don't, I just didn't want anyone to be left behind. And I think that that's, I think oftentimes businesses uh, do not take that into consideration. Sure, I, I I actually do completely understand. It's a, uh, and I you know I kind of like the way you approach it, which is you know it's uh, just different tiers. Which we've had that talk with about other things. We won't get into that right now. So real quickly, because yeah. this is kind of an interesting story, uh, Fiber Hooligans. I I I know that you have been a knitter for 18 years. How do we know that it's actually 18 years? Because I think there's a story to. This. Because it was on. I learned to knit um, December 13th. 20, 2002, which is my birthday, and being in an AmeriCorps program, I uh, I didn't have a car. I was out in Rhode Island at the time, and uh, my team we were stationed in the Woonsocket Mill School, so in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and we had to take this like 45 minute bus ride back. And so one of my core members, she had a ball of yarn, and these those long metal like Sally Bates knitting needles and they were kind of bent I remember and she's like for your birthday I'm going to teach you how to knit and I will never her name was Bryn and I will never forget I was on that bus and she showed me how to do like the backwards loop cast on and I just picked it up and I learned to knit I learned to purl if I had any questions I would go to her um my best friend at the time she you know, learn to knit as well. So it was just our thing to do. We were just taken by knitting and, and, um, and yeah, that's when I started. And it, it, from there, people would say from there just went downhill. <laughs> no, it didn't go downhill. Um, it just, I just, I, I just fell in love with it. And so after learning to knit, I wanted to learn to crochet and then I learned to dye yarn, I learned to spin. And it was that rabbit hole that I went in 
and I I've, I've, haven't come out of it. So um, I'm happy with that. That's great. Earlier we were talking about um, understanding that, you know, first when we had all started having this conversation in um, – in, I think it was late 2018, early 2019, um, uh-huh. the, the lack of diversity in our industry. And you and I, during our pre-interview, talked about how many great designers there are and, and how many uh, great uh, BIPOC artisans there are, as well as, you know, not as many, but, you know, still a lot of BIPOC instructors. And 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 I, I know you have some strong thoughts about that, about the way that that needs to work. Would, would you mind expanding on, on that? In the way that, sorry, in the way that it needs to move forward. Oh, move forward. Um, Well, I I feel that when we were having the discussion last year, I had some of my, some some people that I knew um, who were teachers, white women who were teachers in, in, in the industry, who were very supportive and very understanding that there needs to be a change. And the reality is when we do these shows, those organizations only have so many slots for teachers and so many slots for uh, vendors and, and, and whatnot. And so for me, when I had this conversation with someone last year, I said, you wanting to support this, you realize that you would have to give up your space in order to have a BIPOC. Um, have the same opportunities that you have had for a very long time. And that there were some actually some teachers that I know who said, you know what, I don't really need to teach this this year or, you know, why don't you give it to BIPOC and to give their space? But then there are others who are very hesitant. And so that is the challenge where you've had, we've had over like 400 years of people that have been oppressed in this country and 400 years of people that have had privilege that's been passed down. All of it has been passed down, right? Generation after generation, you know, as a black woman, it, you know, it slowly has improved. Uh, I'm, I have done better than my grandmother has, but not equal to other white people, right? And so the crafting industry is no different when it comes to those access of opportunities to teach and to design and um, because I actually, I was having this conversation, I think also with you and someone else, when we are thinking, when we know with the, like, for example, we know with this pandemic that a lot of the essential workers are people of color. And we know that, that the people that are getting sick or dying are disproportionately people of color, black and Latina, Latinx. And so um, when we think about designing a a lot of people that I know who are, are designers also have other jobs, particularly BIPOC designers. And they haven't had the access or the opportunity for their patterns to like really like jump and succeed in certain ways that have been for other uh, white women in the industry who are now working on, you know, who have the opportunity and privilege to work as a full-time designer. So when you're working as a full-time designer, you are designing all the time, whereas a lot of BIPOCs are providing for their families still. They, you know, they would love to make that career change, but they don't have the socioeconomic to be able to become full-time designers. 
And so we're not only unpacking how do you make opportunities successful for other BIPOCs in the industry, we also have to unpack as a society what systematic racism has created, right? And it, it trickles into all industries. So it's not just when we say access to opportunities in the crafting industry, we still have to address the systematic racism as a country. We have to just discuss that, like, what red, how redlining uh, um, black families from getting homes. Uh, the GI Bill, uh, you know, black men were serving and did not benefit from the GI Bill, which, which would have gone a long way. Um, what policing has how policing has evolved since slavery, um, you know, and, and, and what that means. Like all of these things, 400 years of systematic racism we're trying to unpack, and you can see the toll that that has taken when you really break down how our crafting industry benefits one group and not all. And to think that we, when we had this conversation last year, that it's just going to automatically, everything is going to change within the next two, three years, I think is very, I would say, naive. And I came to the realization last year, last, last month in June, that uh, the issues of equality and systematic racism, we may not see it uh, come to full um like grow until like my niece's kids, you know, generations from now. And, but we are part of this process in, the, in our second civil rights movement, which we're in to really lay the final, I call it the final foundation to build a just society. And it's going to take years, it's going to take years for us to get to a place where we're not, um, we don't have this level of disparity, like uh, this, uh, socioeconomic disparity and racial, even like you know, racial profiling. It's going to take it's going to take several years. So. Yeah. Yep. I I I agree. My <laughs> something my son asked me recently, and. Uh, what did your son say? He asked me exactly the same thing. I have a, I have a 19 year old son who asked me, you know, when, and I just said I have no clue. But you know, I'm not sure it's in your lifetime, pal. Um, so right, it's 400 uh, years. It's, it's like a, yeah, you have to break, uh, and just to not get off the subject, but it's part of what I talk about within my business when we talk about craftivism. Like so, August 19th is the centennial of the 19th Amendment. Um, uh, um, or it's the twentieth. Sorry, uh, but when the when the nineteenth amendment was ratified, and this is a very going to be a very historic election year as well. Yes. Um, again, and so you we when we really break down um, how the constitution right. As someone like a political scientist, I people say, well, why did you major in political science? And they said, it was not to become a politician. That's for sure. A lot of people make this assumption that if you're going into political science, that you want to 
become a politician. And that is not correct. I loved studying, uh, like, political philosophy, political theory with Plato, Aristotle, and, like, how democracies are formed and what it means to be a citizen. And when we think about the Constitution, right, and, like, when he really boils down, what we are taught in school was all false about the Constitution. And my British friends, I, they joke, and they're like, Americans didn't want to pay their taxes. <laughs> yes, they were ruled at the time by a king and, and whatever, but they just didn't want to pay the taxes. They wanted to be independent. And the founding fathers and everyone who signed the Constitution were able to say that when they said all men were created equal, they left out women, they left out uh, enslaved Africans. So if the Constitution was never for everyone. It was for white men. And for centuries, white men have built their wealth, they have built their power based upon that document. And they've been able to be in power politically for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, we have demographic changes that have happened, and you've had people socially conscious of the, those disparities. And, you know, people say, well, what about women? And I said, well, white women also have contributed to that because their proximity to white men and that they were willing to overlook everything that was happening to people of color because they were still benefiting benefiting from that system in, in many ways. And so when we think about um, the crafting community, you say who has benefited the longest? How has it shaped them? And then how do you tell them that you have benefited from this and it, and it was never fair and it was never equal and we're now going to um, create change? And to be able to unpack that, for people to fully understand that is, is I think, a challenge. I mean, we have a lot of challenges, but I'm very optimistic for what the future holds. Like, everything happens for a reason. And there was a reason why Trump became president. There was a reason, um, and it reveals who America really is, and that's what it is. And so now that we know what, who we are, we have an opportunity now to really shape it in, for the future generations to come. This is absolutely the civil rights movement that we're going through. It's the second one, um, and it's a civil rights movement with a lot of other people now involved. And so um, to be able to be living through this also is very – you know, it's not it's not like exciting, like, but it's very um, I don't know, like heartfelt. It's like it's 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 you just it's. I think there's a lot of weight on people's shoulders to to get it right, and okay. I feel that pressure within what I do. Okay, uh, well, that. No, I, I was just oh, contemplating what you were thinking there for a second. No, it's it just I just wanted to contemplate that, for the, for the, you know, because I never, I don't really think that I had realized that we are in, you know, sort of the second. Um, but you're right. Absolutely. We probably are. Okay. You know, well, that's so. that's that's amazing. So we we talked a little bit. Um, there's a discussion going on right now about uh, yarn companies, designers, uh, yarn, and all kinds of, of things like this, and I wanted to talk about specifically how how we okay how we create opportunities for 
uh, BIPOC designers with the yarn companies because that that still mm. seems to be somewhat a problem. In other words, not uh, yeah, and, and unfortunate that. And I think it's I think this is this is kind of uh, really relevant right now. And, and I know you have some mm-hmm. thoughts. And can you talk about that? Well, I look at it on two sides. You have independent dyers and designers, and then you I, and and we talked about like the corp, corporate companies that are we say that are bigger, but their staff is actually really small. It's not like sure. it's 300 people. Um, no. Bigger brands that have been around for a long time. Um, there are two, I think there are two ways that I look at this. As an indie dyer, there are certain designers who I get along with very well and who design very well. And I want to continue to work with them all the time. But as a business model, I don't necessarily know, for, for me, if that's, like, very, one, lucrative, or two, necessarily, I don't say fair, but if it's, you know, just for strategy, it's not the right strategy. And so what you have are bigger brands who cater to a large audience in rural, suburban, city, whatever. They still take a large chunk of like their income comes from a lot of different, a lot of different people. They are designing with people who are, you know, like quote well known. Um, but just like any type of thing that you want to do, like I'm thinking about bringing on like an indie, and I mean to bring on another dyer as an apprentice because the business has grown. So these major companies, these major brands, really need to look and see like bringing on four or five BIPOC designers, which they have done for white designers, and really nurture them through their process of being like the in-house designers. And that, I think, is one of the bigger problems that we have in the industry is that you have these really well-known designers who do really well. And all the companies, whether they're indie dyers to larger brands, want them. And in the long term, there are so many that just the talent pool out there is very strong that they need to say, you know what, we're going to pick up five designers and we're going to nurture them for the next, you know, bring them into the fold of the business. You know, their first pattern may not be as successful, but we're going to keep pushing out the yarn to them and paying them to design for us and um, so that they become a household name. So if you're giving it to a designer, the problem is if you give someone uh, the yarn and whatnot and the pattern or the kit doesn't sell, then you're assuming that it's the designer and maybe not the time you sent it, um, you know, the the time of year it was released or maybe it was the yarn or X, Y, and Z. But if you keep working with the same designer, when people start saying, you know, where did you get the pattern? Oh, the pattern's from, you know, um, Lady Dye Yarns and, and, and the yarn is from Lady Dye Yarns. Then it, it starts to click, and it starts to – people will say, oh, yeah, it's the same person. Well, let me check that person out. And then they look at their work, and they're like, oh, their body of work that they've been doing with this company is great. So, you know, for me, it's like I believe that a lot of these major brands need to take in an apprenticeship aspect of, you know, for their business and bring in a diverse pool of designers and have them design with the yarn in a contract basis for like three to four years, right? Three to five years. 
so that they can um, gain the knowledge and the experience for designing for someone. Now, when it comes to these independent um, design, I would say designers and indie dyers, who I, I feel like I realized that as an indie dyer myself, you really do build these relationships with designers outside of the work. And you want to support them and you want to support each other. And we do have a problem, and it's not a problem, but you do see where people who are really well known, you could say influencers, who really connect with each other, continue to work with each other, and they support each other's businesses, and those businesses do really well. And in this pandemic, like, there's a part of me that's like, well, that's just BS. But at the same time, it's like, you know what? They've got a good chemistry together. Let them work together and continue to produce good work. So it's like a, you know, a double-edged sword. You know, how do you keep that balance between the two? Um, but I feel like the bigger change needs to come from these major brands who continue to work with the same designer. And to be honest with you, some of the designers that these major brands work with also don't represent the changing demographic as far as age, generational. And so they're not necessarily producing the, I guess you want to say, the hip or the most latest fashion design. Um, and so bringing on, like, new blood is always good. You know, it can't hurt your brand. Um, and, you know, I will be honest with you, uh, that is one of, you know, classical elite is no longer exists. And if you ask, you know, it's really unfortunate, but I, there was an opportunity that I was, hoping to have with them years ago and that was one of the things that I had noticed that like they have great yarn um, but they were missing the change in like indie dyers and designers and we we couldn't work it out in the end but it was a missed opportunity the way I look at it was classically it was a you know they're no longer in business so I'm mentioning their name Um, but it was a missed opportunity for them Um, and, and I mean and I don't know the, the whole the whole situation, but I think just that was just one of those things where um, I thought as like a, a major brand that they had missed. So. All right, let's turn our attention to the one of the newest things you're working on right now because we've got a lot to talk about this because you know I I, right. <laughs> I think you and I but well you and I both agree that this this may well this next election may well be the most important election in it's the know. most consequential election yeah yeah in in my lifetime so you, you've got the Empower People Project, and I am um, so excited about this. <laughs> yeah, please, please. I mean, you know, the our 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 one connection to that is we both use the same webmaster for it, and and that's how I learned yeah. it first. But 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 please tell the Fiber Hooligan listeners um, about this because it, you know this is something you can get involved in, folks. So the Empower People Project is to get people involved in the political process for this upcoming election. Um, on November 3rd, um, 2020. And the way it came about was that uh, Kafapinka and I were chatting um, right after the murder of George Floyd and how do we get the community together um, to to do something impactful but work together to get people involved. And we thought about the Pussycat Movement and we felt that the Pussycat Movement was a reaction to what happened to uh, the result of the 2016 election. And this time we wanted people to be proactive. And so we um, started getting more people involved um, in 
in the uh, process of creating this uh, project. So we brought someone on who was a crochet designer, someone who was a sewer, a graphic designer, and we had other contributors who helped us kind of get our thoughts together. And we all played our part um, as far as, like, uh, um, you know, what to contribute. But the Empower People is a call to action. Uh, we all can we, – we realize that we can't stand on the sidelines uh, in 2020 and beyond and that we were in a pivotal moment in our country um, and we needed to be, you know, actively engaged in politics. And so we wanted to make sure that the crafting community stands together to fight for everyone's rights and, and the rights of others. And um, we, wanted, we wanted people to create something – that was the color that was uh, would be bold, uh, that was very symbolic, and that we made the pattern you know fairly easy to do. Um, but we wanted people to wear it and to speak out against injustice, to attend gatherings, to attend meetings, and to vote. So the, the, the color purple uh, represents you know ambition. It represents power. It represents strength. And so we wanted to to use that color, but we also wanted um, people to wear it to to those type, to those to, you know to marches to, to, to meetings and voting. And the way that we worked around the, the the language is that we wanted people in the crafting community to be committed to this, and we wanted people to commit to embracing humanity. Uh, we all want to be treated as human beings. We wanted to uh, make sure that people embraced family, and we said we all want to protect for and provide for our, fam- our loved ones, which I felt like we could all agree across all boards. Um, we wanted to embody community. We wanted all marginalized communities to feel safe from law enforcement. Uh, we wanted to emphasize equality. We recognized that you know women's rights and LGBT. GQ rights are also human rights, which uh, I feel like they go hand in hand. I, I do not believe our Constitution was written for women. It was not written for LGBTQIA. It wasn't written for other marginalized people. Um, and we needed to change that, and we needed to make sure that we this is what we represented. And we also, like, I spent a lot of time talking about equity. And we also wanted to make sure that we um, – emphasize equity and we wanted to make sure that you know people understand that we all want equity and social mobility for all so these are issues that are actually on the table when we think about the election and so we wanted to make sure that people committed to those things and that these if you go to our website these are the things that we that you can show or if you have someone in your family or a friend who's like a centrist, right? I don't know if there's a centrist anymore in our society or independent, um, but like, you know, we wanted people who are on the fence that you could say like, we all want to provide for our family. We all want human rights. And if you do believe in that, then you need to vote. I put them and you know, and that's the empowered people project. And we have had over 6,000 people download the pattern on Ravelry. We've already had over 600 people make it. I've dyed over, you know, 300 games purple yarn so far. Um, it's, you know, yarn stores are getting involved in it. And we've launched just about a month ago. And we know that it's the summer, and um, we don't want the, the conversation to dwindle down. I feel that once we move closer to the election time, it'll pick right back up. Um, I mean, August is just one of those tough months because everyone's on vacation or everyone, well, I don't even know if people are really going on vacation, but, we, you know, it's just one of those months that, you know, it's the dog days of summer. 
but we really wanted people to get a head start. There was, we felt that there was no reason why in our crafting community that people couldn't come together on this project if they got together to make millions of pussy hats. <laughs> that was our whole assessment. People make millions of pussy hats. There's no reason why you can't make a purple bandana. And there's no reason why you can't march. And it's important to, to you know, most of the decisions that, ha- that affect you happen on the local and state level. So during this pandemic, they are offering the, the city council meetings virtually via Zoom or other webinars. It's important that you get on to those webinars and you listen to what your representatives are putting on the table for you and your neighbors and your children, and you need to make a decision if those policies are right for you. And if they're not right for you, then you need to vote to put the people in that will make those changes for you so you can have a prosperous life. And that is very important. And there's a meme, a demographic that I posted in my stories a couple of days ago, and it showed the results of the 2016 election. It said how people view the 2016 election. And it had, like, you know, Secretary Clinton, 64 million-something votes. Um, Trump had, like, 62 uh, million votes. And then it showed this other part that was, like, you know, like 20% voted for third party. And the reality is is that it was only, like, 3% voted for third party. And like 47% evenly split between the two candidates. And then 108 million people who were eligible to vote who didn't vote, right? So you have a, a large number of people who didn't vote in the 2016 election. If you go to other countries, they take voting very seriously. In our, in our country, people are very apathetic about it, and they don't want to vote. And you cannot sit on the sidelines and not vote. And there's no, like, lesser of the two evils, in my opinion, this year. It's just, or even any year. It's like, I don't even want to get started on 2016. But, like, it is crucial that people vote. It's crucial that people vote. So uh, that's you don't the have power to tell me people. Anything. That's fantastic. And we will post uh, links up to that site um, in the show notes after this as well. So Yeah, uh, and... Yeah, oh, and I and I encourage you. You know, let's as as fiber hooligan listeners, let's let's uh, show up with this too. Um, let's 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 impress people by by how much we bite into. Yeah, this, make okay? it for your kids. People are making it for their cats and dogs. Like I, you know, I'm surprised by that, but I think it's really cool. And if you like, if you if, and I tell people this, if you follow my company and you can follow my brand, I think that there's a lot of personalities in our crafting community. I kind of. I, um, with my brand, I am the craftivist brand, right? So I talk about politics in my crafting. Uh, I talk about social justice issues. I talk about, you know, educational things. So, you know, um, when you and I having this discussion, you know, I'm very comfortable having it. A lot, there are all these other people out there who like to showcase yarn because that's what they do on their podcast or their blogs. But if you're coming to, you know, follow me, um, you're going to get a different approach in the crafting community. So I feel like I could talk about this for days, and I just think that it's just very important. But also, that's just my background. That's, that's the career path that I, you know, I chose and I feel most comfortable in. So, but I feel that the Empowered People Project 
is a project for everyone. And we know it is because we have millions of people make pussy ass. <laughs> people need to make a purple bandana. Yeah. Okay, all right. So um, we're coming down close to the uh, the uh, the end of our of our talk here, and it, it it's it's really gone very fast. Um, it, I but know. I, I I and it, I wanted to ask you, what haven't we talked about that we should be talking about? Um, I you know I'm I feel like I feel like I don't know. I think it's interesting how the pandemic has changed, like, you know, at this time of year, we're thinking about what are the trends for the knitting season? Like, what's upcoming for the knitting season? And it's a little different this year because there's no shows. (laughs) And so I just, I think for me, I just want to say to people, um, despite everything that's been going on, what I love about the crafting community is that we, you know, when they say when life gives you like lemons, make lemonade. We have really um, transformed how we deal with the pandemic during um, during like this time. And I'm really looking forward to what people do online. Like we have online classes, we've had virtual marketplaces, we've had virtual classes. Like we're not stopping. So I don't feel like necessarily like a topic, but I just. I just really love the crafting community, the fiber community. And I appreciate you, Benjamin, for bringing me on and for all that you've been doing, even for Stitches events for, you know, this year and for next year. And I feel like everyone is, like, you and other people have handled this situation, and I know that it affects your business and company as well. And that, you know, once we all get back together, you know, we're going to really come out to the next show and support each other in person. And so I'm just, I just am in awe every time at what, what the fiber community can bring to the table. Um, And um, I'm not saying that's going to be over soon because it's not, but we've learned to adapt and we're learning to like have fun with it. Yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a, you know, thank you for saying that. That, That's a very nice positive sentiment. So um, last question before we uh, uh, let you get back to your day is um, are there any words of wisdom that you'd like to give to the world out there? Yes. If you're running a business um, during this time or just in general, um, one of the things that my advisory board member said, if you're starting out, like I want to talk to people who are starting or thinking about starting a business or starting out, you know, it truly does take like five years before like, you turn a profit, but it takes like five years for you to really understand the business. Um, but I feel that if you uh, believe in a product that you're trying to sell or something that you want to do, just go for it. Um, and I know that that's just a cliche thing to say, but oftentimes um, when you just go for it, you know, you're going to hit bumps in the road, but there's always like this big rainbow at the end of the tunnel. And no matter what we're going through as a country or in the fiber community, with the discussion about diversity, racism, inclusion. In the end, uh, it is to better future generations to come so that we are living in a more harmonious society, a more harmonious community, um, crafting community. 
Um, and so the work that you guys are all doing, I really appreciate myself. And I also really appreciate the support that you've shown and given my business um, over the years. Uh, and um, we want to continue to hold a high standard for ourselves and for other people in the community. So I just want to say thank you all around. And um, Benjamin, thank you for uh, having me on. And I really uh, appreciate the work that your company is doing around diversity and inclusion and leading the way as well. Um, and, that, and I don't think that people, you know, fully understand that. So I really, really appreciate all the work that you've been doing. Oh, well, you're, you're very gracious. Thank you very much. But, uh, you know, it, this, this work wouldn't be getting done probably if it wasn't for um, folks like you reminding us. This, this is a problem here, folks, and continuing to be patient and reminding us this is a problem. So, um, you know, it can, it can occasionally be pretty dense sometimes. But uh, thank, you for, um, thank you for leading the fight, too. Yeah, you're great. It's been great. Um, so, thank, and thanks cool. very much for... It's so hot oh, today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, today it's not so bad here. Um, you know, oh. it's, it's, uh, it's not bad here, but I know it's hot there, um, and I know you have your fan on. We didn't hear the whole fan through the entire <laughs> thing, so it was good. Um, oh, I want to, again, thank you for being so gracious with your time and so generous with your thoughts. Um, it, it was really a, a wonderful uh, episode and, and interview, and I'm just going to wish you a, a, a glorious day, and uh, hopefully we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Diane Ivey of Lady Die Yards. I'm so pleased she could uh, join us on the show today. Links to many of the things we talked about will be posted on the show notes for this episode, and we're going to try to get those show notes up on FiberHooligan.com within the next day or so. Okay, next Monday, my guests will be the team from Oink Pigments. If you don't know about Oink Pigments, they were established in 2010 and are a purveyor of small-batch hand-dyed yarns from Vista, California, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Their owners are a trio of strong-willed humans who love pigs, puns, and pearls. They have over 140 bright and playful colorways available over a do- in over, on over a dozen yarns and fiber bases. Uh, Alexa, Helena, Julie, and Harper will be all be on the show with me. Uh, it should be fun, if not a little bit chaotic. I've never had that many people on the show at the same time. Uh, for the sake of accommodation, accommodating everyone's schedules, this show will be pre-recorded, but we will be released at the normal Fiber Hooligan time. Uh, please do tune in on Monday because I think you'll uh, get a kick out of the show. Uh, I also want to make sure that you know that I'm eager to hear from you. You can email me questions, recommendations, critiques, and feedback at fiberhooligan at gmail.com. And that includes suggestions for guests or cool things you'd like me to highlight on the show. I don't promise to respond to every email or message, but I do promise to do my best to read them all. If you ask a really great question or have an inspired idea, I may even read your email on the podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Diane, for being on the show today and for uh, being just wonderful. Uh, I'd like to thank the XRX and Stitches crew for encouraging me to start this podcast up again. I'd like to thank my partners and family, David, Elaine, and Alexi, for their support. I'd like to thank my dear wife, Krista, for always believing in me. I'd like to thank Libby Butler-Gluck for all her encouragement and help. And today I'd like to send an extra shout-out to my friend, Kay Mather. Thank you for always being so supportive. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Well, that's our show, Fiber Hooligans. As we slide on out of here today, I'd like to wish you all a glorious week. Remember, the only thing better than being creative is being kind to each other. The good news, we can do both. 
thank you for spending this time with us. I hope you join me next week with the team from Mike Bigman for another edition of Hyperbolic.